this is legend i'm sam i'm amy and we are a podcast about cryptids urban legends and the paranormal yeah we are hello how's it going what's up uh you want to do random questions yeah okay i'm gonna push the button and you're gonna tell me when to stop so Mm. now (laughs) what makes you cry lots of things anymore (laughs) it didn't used to be anything but I don't know, hormones or something, because I literally can watch a... Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. Yesterday, all my family was at my house. We were sitting on the couch watching a football game, and it was commercial time, and it was a Coca-Cola commercial <laughs> <laughs> of a son cooking in the kitchen. For his family, like a big group of family, and he was in the kitchen by himself, and his mom was with him, and she was like knock knocking into him, like so that he would accidentally dump a little bit more spice into the bowl, and like <laughs> kind of guiding him like through cooking a meal. Well, then he has his little dish of whatever the hell it was he made, and he walks out into the room with his family, and he looks, and his mom's not there. She was oh. dead. And I was literally like, <laughs> and my dad and my husband were like, are you okay? And I was like, his mom was dead. <laughs> I'm tearing up right now. I'm not even kidding. That commercial, oh my goodness. The commercial hit hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was so bad. That's funny. So lots of things anymore um i don't really like cry i'll tear up yeah when i see like sad puppy things i think that's more what i mean is like i'll, I'll but i will actually shed tears like literal <laughs> tears not like sobbing but anyways yeah but. mostly it's just like sad puppy things sad puppy or things are awful and will get me all as well movies when someone i really like dies I rarely watch a movie where that happens anymore. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> there are some that will, though. I like to torture myself, though. I, yeah, I do that. I'll watch it all over and over and over again. Wow. No, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> all right, next. Well, who is one of your best friends? And what I do don't you know. About I them? don't have any. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Same man, same. <laughs> I got too many to count. Really, I know. Seriously, I'm so popular. You know, so, you know, it's just the one that I do this like podcast with. I guess. <laughs> Let's see. One of my many best friends is Sam, and I love that she still puts up with me after almost twenty years. <laughs> oh no way! I had no idea. <laughs> one more tell me when when have you ever saved someone's life yeah i have actually i don't know if it's been said on this podcast or not but one time i had to jump into a river to grab my <laughs> uh four or five year old daughter how old four. was she four yeah four, four. Yeah, so I don't know if I went into detail about that, but behind my house, there's a river and there's like a little tiny section that goes out just a little bit into the water. And I always take the kids down there. We look into the water, but it's like a kind of a drop off right there. I don't know how deep it is, but it's deep enough to where I jumped in and my body went under the water. Nice. So she uh, was behind me and I turned around and was talking to my other friend and her boyfriend at the time who was standing behind me. And I just hear plop into the water (laughs) and I had my dog in one hand and I literally just dropped his leash and my son, my savior, 
picked up the leash and I just jumped into the water and grabbed her and she was just having the time of her life (laughs) and then we had to walk home like a lot of blocks soaking wet that's good it was in like summer though right so it wasn't yeah it was in the summertime but it was refreshing it was sticky (laughs) it felt not nice (laughs) What did you do with your phone? Did you I throw actually, it out of your pocket? So that's kind of one thing that we still laugh about to this day because I usually always carry my phone with me and have it in my hand. I always am wearing black leggings, so I never have pockets. Mm. So it's always in my hand. But for whatever reason, I like right before I jumped in, I smacked my ass to make sure that my phone was not in the back pocket that I do not possess. (laughs) So I always get shit about that where I'm like, drop the leash, smack my ass and jump into the water. (laughs) I always wonder that when I see videos of people like jumping in the water, getting pushed in the water or something, I'm like, what about their phone? Oh, I see a lot of them when they get pushed into the water by their friends and they're like, dude, my phone. And they have their phone in their hand. (laughs) I would kill somebody. I can't afford to replace the phone. Like that shit is expensive. Yeah. If someone pushes me in water while I have my phone on me, they are buying me a new phone. Yeah, exactly. You are buying Mm -hmm. me a new phone. I've never saved anyone's life. No, I was going to say, have you I don't think so. You have emotionally saved my life many times. <laughs> True. I made some lives better when I worked at Stony Ridge. Oh, yes. I was like their surrogate child. That was real weird. That was real weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? What? Chicken butt. This. This is a very special episode. Is it? Yeah. This is my first alien episode. Honestly, very surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone that knew me as a kid or a teenager like Sam, it's probably real weird that this is the first alien related story I'm doing. It it definitely is really weird. I didn't really think about it until... (laughs) the second but honestly gad is really weird yeah yeah remember when you knew me as a teenager and i had a marvin the martian rug and mm-hmm. marvin the martian earrings and marvin the martian t-shirt the t-shirt giant- i for sure like that sticks out that <laughs> when i imagine you as a teenager that is what i see in my head it was one of my favorites mm-hmm. and in my giant alien head beaded door hanger mm-hmm. and all the random alien stuff that and I the had. color of your walls no oh, well, yeah that was a little alien too that reminds <laughs> me of aliens uh yeah so i love aliens that's that's kind of the point of the story all right yeah so we're gonna talk about the exeter incident ever heard of it it sounds really familiar, but I could not tell you anything. Well, it was mentioned in conjunction with Betty and Barney Hill's abduction in a few articles. Maybe so that's I didn't where I know. Put it. Yeah, that might be. So, most of what I'm going to tell you on this main encounter comes from an interview that a teacher by the name of Dennis Robinson from Exeter High School, and several of his students had conducted 15 years after the incident for the school paper. Interesting. The Exeter incident takes place in 1965 on September 3rd. My dad was two years and two days old, and my mom was not quite born yet. And my son was exactly negative something years old. 48. 48, because September (laughs) 3rd, that's the day. Was it 48 or was it 43? My Bro, I don't working. math ever. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 48. It's definitely 48. I trust you. <laughs> anyway. At 2 in the morning, 
an 18-year-old Norman Muscarello was hitchhiking down Route 150 near Kensington, New Hampshire, towards Exeter. It was a very clear night. He was passing a farm with a wide open view of the sky. He said he could even see the lights from Hampton Beach. He wanted to make it very clear that he could tell what a passing plane looked like and that he could tell what the water in the distance looked like reflecting the lights from the town. Okay. Okay. In the distance, he spotted some pulsating lights in the north headed southwest right towards him. In the interview, he snapped his fingers to explain how fast the thing got to his location. This is where I'm going to tell you two versions of what he says he saw. The first was on his police report. What I forgot to mention a moment ago was that Norman calls the sighting the thing. So I am going to reference it as the thing as well. So back to the police report. In the report, he says that the thing had five bright lights. The lights were in a line in a 60-degree angle and extremely bright, bright enough that it lit up the entire area around the house next to him, and he, could, he couldn't decipher the form of the object attached to the lights. Hmm. When they moved out over the field by the house, it looks like the lights were floating like a leaf. Remember that? Yeah. The thing would go back behind the trees and then reappear several times. The light was always moving in a 60-degree angle. Only one light would be on at a time. They were flashing in a pattern. One, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. He said at one time it seemed they were so close he jumped into a ditch to avoid being hit. Ooh. He watched for about 15 minutes before they went away and he was able to get to the station. Now for what he told the students at Exeter High School in the 1980s. He explained that it had pulsating lights, but there was no silhouette of the craft, no sound either. The only sound he heard was of the horses in the field next to him freaking out. He, when he first saw it coming for him, it disappeared as it went over him. He realized his vision had hazed over like he had just had his picture taken with a flash on. Ooh. When his vision cleared, it showed up again. He felt scared and frozen, but eventually ran across the road and fell in a ditch by a house. Ouch. So this thing was like die bombing him? That's kind of what he makes it sound like. It was at least going back and forth from wherever he was. Okay. Also, I realized just now that I always call it die bombing, but I think it's dive bombing. It is dive bombing. Blah, 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 blah dive bombing I've, I've called it dive bombing my entire life not kidding <laughs> but i was in the two seconds that i said it i was like that it doesn't really make sense i think no. it would be dive yeah they're well, diving yeah right okay not dying well, that was an eye-opening experience <laughs> when he landed in the ditch he kind of laid there for a bit when he looked up he said the house was glowing red but not at the same time the house was glowing red, like from the lights on the yeah. ship? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but not really red at the same time. That's also how he described the lights. Like, they didn't really have a color. But that was in the second interview, not the police report. Okay. The entire time the lights had continued to pulsate, but no matter how close it seemed to get, he still could not decipher a shape or a pattern. When it left, he tried to get the attention of the homeowners by pounding on the door. He said later he found out that the owners had been home, but didn't want to open the door to someone pounding on it at two in the morning. <laughs> I mean, can you blame them? But no. also, you should probably check and make sure that somebody's okay. Yeah, it's like 50-50. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do 100% understand them not opening the door. Yeah. <laughs> I would just yell through the door. Do That's... you need me to call 911? Okay, I'll do that. Sit yes, tight. <laughs> same, same. 
So since they weren't answering, he ran back out to the road. And when he saw the first car, he decided he wasn't going to let them pass him by and stood directly in their way. He got them to take him to the police station in Exeter. He also made a funny comment about how apparently it was a guy and who he presumed was his wife. But he later found out that it was not his wife. And... (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) That he wouldn't give the guy's name in interviews because he respected his privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Hell no. Didn't want to get him in trouble. I'd be like, this dude was with this chick. At two in the morning. At two in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing good happens at two in the morning. Just saying. (laughs) So I'm going to try to get fancy with our editing here. And insert a clip from episode 32 when Sam told us about Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. There's some info there about NICAP that honestly I just don't feel like explaining again. (laughs) Alrighty. Which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. So, on September 11th, an investigator for NICAP, Raymond Fowler received a call about the Exeter incident and immediately drove to the town to investigate. He created an 18-page document about his findings. The next part of this story is going to include information he gathered from the police officers and the information still from Norman's interview with Exeter High School. Okay. When Norman got to the police station, he talked to a police officer named Scratch Tolland. That is a name. Yeah, Yeah. it is. Scratch told him he wasn't surprised about the report because another officer had just had an interaction with a lady with a similar story. Officer Eugene Bertrand had found a lady parked on the side of Route 101. He thought she was having engine problems, so he stopped to see if he could assist her. The woman had told him about being chased down the road by a flying object with red flashing lights. Creepy. I would be scared. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't sound like a good time. No. The lady showed him the lights way out in the distance, but Eugene thought it was just a bright star. He told the woman she would be fine and headed back to the police station. Well, that's nice. I don't know. (laughs) I I feel like, I don't know. I, I mean, what could you really do? But at the same time... You're yeah, fine. Like, Go home. Take her information and assist her home, maybe? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like there was yeah. more. After Norman made his report, Officer Eugene was super curious and wanted Norman to take him to the location. When they first got there, he had seen nothing and Eugene felt quite silly. He radioed in that nothing was out there, but they told him to walk out into the field for a bit, just to be sure. When they walked out a bit, Norman yelled, look out, to Eugene. (laughs) Eugene (laughs) Eugene looked up and saw that the thing was, quote, as big as the barn next to them with red flashing lights. Wow. It had just barely cleared the tree line when he had looked up and was moving back and forth. Eugene instinctually dropped to one knee and drew his revolver. He didn't realize that he was yelling, and Norman told him later that he was yelling, I'll shoot it! (laughs) (laughs) I'll shoot it! I'll shoot it! Why is that always our first instinct? I don't know, because you have a gun, and therefore you want to shoot things with your gun. But it was huge, do you think? Like, I mean, I guess it could potentially cause harm to it, but, like, why? Well, I mean, obviously he thought about it, and he didn't shoot it, so. That's good. He, you know, redeemed himself a little. (laughs) He used some forethought. Yeah. After a few moments, he told Norman to get back to the patrol car, but Norman was frozen, so Eugene basically had to drag him away. Oh, wow. Once in the car, he radioed for backup and found that Dave Hunt was already on his way. When Dave had arrived, Norman remembered Dave saying, quote, I'm from Missouri. I gotta see it. What you been (laughs) drinking, fellas? (laughs) 
For those of you that didn't know, Missouri is the show me state, and that is an extremely Missourian thing to say. (laughs) I just got a picture of them sitting on porches watching tornadoes. (laughs) What you been drinking, fella? (laughs) Yeah. So it didn't take long for Dave to get his wish of finding out what they were looking at. Dave says that when he spotted it, quote, the object was moving off the tree line, performing fantastic maneuvers. Ooh. It made right angle turns and sort of floated down like a falling leaf. Oh, okay. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Eugene said, quote, it floated, wobbled, and did things that no plane could do. Wobble, 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 wobble. <laughs> Then it just darted away over those trees towards Hampton. After it had left, the officers took Norman back home and went back to the station. When they got there, a call had come in from a guy in a phone booth at Hampton Beach. He said a similarly described object was following him. He seemed very upset. He told them the object was still there but the line was disconnected while they were trying to get information from him. Ooh, I feel like that's not a good sign. The officers went out looking for him at the phone booth. According to Norman, who wasn't actually there, the phone was just dangling with no sign of the man. kind of feel like he added that for some dramatic flair. (laughs) You think so? Yeah, because he wasn't there. He wouldn't know. True. Who was there? Who went? Eugene and Dave. Okay, okay. Yeah. So Eugene said that they also checked hospitals, but they never found him. So mystery man in a phone booth might have been abducted. That's freaky. So the next morning, Norman said his kitchen was full of people. There were cops, photographers, someone from Manchester Union, John Fuller, who we will talk a little bit about later, and his photographer and Major Kehoe and his sergeant. Kehoe, we know. (laughs) Well, this is where things get a little weird for me. Okay. Donald Kehoe is the co-founder of NICAP, which Mm -hmm. we talked about in your episode, and the author of Flying Saucers Are Real! Exclamation point. Yeah. <laughs> Supposedly, at this point, Major Kehoe had left the military and was very deeply involved with NICAP. Okay. So I'm going to tell you what Norman said happened and then tell you why I'm confused. Okay. So Norman said that Major Kehoe was from Pease Air Force Base right. and had a sergeant with him. That had a briefcase handcuffed to his arm. What? At the time, Norman didn't know, but he found out later that the briefcase contained the Project Blue Book documents. Mm-hmm. Insert Sam's Blue Book clip here. <laughs> <laughs> project Blue Book is the Air Force Air Force's UFO research project. Norman says that they took the briefcase from the handcuffed and opened it in the kitchen. Then in the living room, Kehoe was telling Norman to shut up about the story, not to say anything to anyone about it, and not to sign anything. At the time, Norman had registered for the Navy and would go on to be a Vietnam vet, so good on him. Mm -hmm. But he didn't officially get sworn in until the next month. Knowing this, Kehoe threatened him, saying that if he had already been sworn in, he would just take him straight to the base so he couldn't talk to anyone. There was also an altercation with Norman's mom. She went to the kitchen to get coffee for everyone and took a little peek in the briefcase. Kehoe caught her and yelled at her to stay out of it, but like with some choice words. She yelled back and then Norman told him to get out of their home. Now, what bothers me is that it appears that this Major Kehoe, with a sergeant and the Project Blue Book briefcase, was there acting as a part of the military. hmm But at this point, it would have been around 20 years since he had left the military. 
So maybe it was a different major Keo, or maybe after 15 years of telling the same story, somehow he got the names of the majors switched because he did interact with Keho with NICAP. Mm-hmm. So I'm not or sure. Maybe he was in retirement, but still was doing some side project UFO thing. Maybe. I mean, I don't know, because at this point he was being very vocal about how the military was covering up. Yeah, well, that's another thing that strikes me as odd is that he's like, you don't tell anybody that this happened, but I'm going to write a whole ass book that says UFOs are real. So maybe he was wanting to get the story himself. Maybe. But yeah, that really threw me off. Yeah, I was a little confused on that one. Officer Eugene Bertrand did tell Raymond Fowler about how the next morning the police station was full of people as well. Around 7 or 8 in the morning, a team from the Air Force had shown up and was yelling at Eugene and Dave to keep quiet about the incident. But they told them it was already too late and told them that earlier when Norman was making his report, a reporter just happened to be in the station and phoned someone at Manchester Union about the story. And within hours, there was a guy tapping on the window wanting to get a story. (laughs) It's too late to apologize. (laughs) I'm wondering if the Air Force team that visited the police station was the same that went to Norman's house. Oh, maybe. Yeah. And if it was Major Kehoe, since technically Fowler works with for Major Kehoe, if mm-hmm. it would have been him, they probably would have said, like, Major Kehoe and his military team or whatever. Right. So. I also, I can't get over having a suitcase handcuffed to you. That's like some movie shit right there. That is. But I mean, it's a good way to keep stuff with you unless you're kidnapped and they cut off your arm exactly you get into an accident (laughs) and your arm gets cut off or what if the suitcase gets stuck in the car door and the car goes away or on the other side of elevator doors and you're going down yeah it's dangerous it is don't recommend (laughs) so back to another thing that norman had said about his visitors the next morning was that John Fuller was at his house. Now, even the interviewer noticed this and was like, whoa, I thought he didn't come in till later. And Norman insisted he was there. However, the story John tells is that about 11 days after the incident, he was looking for information for his column the Saturday in the Saturday Review, He came across an article in the New York Times talking about an increase in UFO reports in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico. He got in touch with NICAP, and the assistant director, Richard Hall, told him about the extra incident that had just happened and gave him Raymond Fowler's contact information. They got together for dinner at Ray's house, and Ray gave him a copy of his report and told John, quote, Both the officers are intelligent, capable, and seem to know what they're talking about. The sighting was near, and it was low. Bertrand's experience at Air Force refueling makes him capable of discriminating between a UFO and anything else in the air, commercial or military. Is that supposed to be discriminating or differentiating? It says discriminating. (laughs) (laughs) He's good at discriminating? (laughs) yeah alrighty maybe it was a typo I don't know it probably I mean maybe hey I quoted it okay word for word no (laughs) harm no foul on your end (laughs) John ended up writing about the Exeter incident for his column for the Saturday Review then later expanded the column for a full article on Look Magazine then condensed it again for Reader's Digest and eventually, after interviewing all involved, released his book, Incident at Exeter. That's a cool name. So, so the point of all of that was that if he didn't know about it till 11 days later, he was not at that kid's house in the morning. Exactly. 
Yeah. But, you know, 15 years. Stories And get he told. was a Vietnam vet. Who knows what sort of PTSD he had from both experiences. So. Exactly. Yeah. So John Allen Hynek. Insert clip about him here. <laughs> So a close encounter of the first kind means that you've spotted something in the sky and it leaves no evidence. The second kind is if a UFO UFO leaves some physical trace like burns on the ground or you see broken branches. The third kind, which is what Betty and Barney just experienced, is when you've made contact with a UFO. You've seen the aliens. And so if you're curious who made this classification system, it was an astronomer named J. Allen Hynek from Ohio State University. After J. Allen Hynek's passing in 1986, though, two additional types of encounters were created. The fourth kind, which is aliens have kidnapped you. And the Mm -hmm. fifth kind, which is you have regular conversations with aliens. Inserting clips makes this a lot easier to just get to the point. You're welcome. Yeah. Anyway, Heineck says this incident is, quote, a fine example of a close encounter of the first kind. Yeah. Now, before we talk about all of the possible explanations of what they might have seen, I want to get your ideas. What what do you think about this, Sam? What do I think about what? What kind of oh, what do I think about it? Of all of it, the whole incident. Okay, the whole thing. All righty. I don't know. I think that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I know, right? So I haven't made up my mind yet because I feel like it's a it's a lie just because inconsistencies in the story. However, but what inconsistencies? Was Fowler being there and then not being there? Right? Well, yeah. So basically, the only two inconsistencies that I came across was just who might have been at the kid's house the next morning. Okay. Well, then I guess the if the kid's story, the core story of what happened has not changed. No. It didn't change. It just got a couple more details. Like, he was blinded like he got a camera flashed in his face. Okay. Well, I'm going with the UFO. <laughs> okay. I'm because, going with truth. Well, I mean, like, the way that uh, him and the cops all say it like, looked like a leaf and that it would zoom back and forth and the brightness and the flashing lights in a sequence. I mean, it's all very, very consistent. Yes. Amongst all three of them. Well, if it's not a UFO, then it's a giant flying leaf. <laughs> nice. With, with lights on it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I someone, see those all the time. Someone decorated it like a Christmas tree and it was just falling. <laughs> so where would you put it on the weird shitometer so far? So far, mm, go with like a four. A four? Yeah. I was thinking more like an eight, just with like how close it was getting to them and messing with them. We are very on a different level. We are. And the woman getting chased down the road by it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's freaky, but it's, to me, it just isn't, I don't know, like, they it's not any abducted. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess it it didn't reach that encounter of a fourth and a fifth or sixth first kind. one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I don't. Wow, we went very different on that. Yeah. Well, it seems like whoever was like operating this flying majigger was an asshole. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. kept coming at them. So. <laughs> it's like, come at me, bro. <laughs> this guy, bitch. <laughs> So you want to know what theories surround it as to what it is? There are a lot of theories for this one. Really? I mean, UFO Uh would be, I mean, (laughs) it's unidentified and it's flying. True. true. Slightly falling like a leaf object. (laughs) 
So the less detailed ideas include the well-used swamp gas and weather balloon theories, along with a lighted kite, helicopter, or civilian plane. Just a question, though. Like, Mm -hmm. I do know that kites sometimes get angry and, like, dive bomb out of the (laughs) sky at people but like repeatedly like where's and where's the person on the other end i couldn't tell you it depends on which direction the wind was blowing i guess but there was a little bit more detail to that one it was like the tail of the kite probably had lights on it Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go with bullshit yeah, I don't see how it could continually go in a 60-degree angle. I don't see it. No. According to Project Blue Book, the Pentagon said they were viewing stars and planets through a temperature inversion. Basically, normal air patterns are warmest near the ground and colder as they go up. But in a temperature inversion... The layers get jumbled and a pocket of warm air gets trapped between two layers of cold air and this can cause visual distortions. So this does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. temperature inversions. Happens a lot, really. But I don't think that's what they were seeing because the lights were flickering in a pattern and lit up the whole field. I don't think it's going to amplify the lights from stars that much. Well, yeah, that's what I'm wondering is what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. The Pentagon was just like, it was the stars. You <laughs> didn't see anything. <laughs> the next idea was that they were seeing a glare from airport landing lights at Pease Air Force Base. They actually tested this theory By turning off and on the runway marker lights and the Mm -hmm. approach strobes. However, there was nothing to be seen from where the sightings took place. I was going to say, do you know how far away it was from where they were? I didn't look, but far enough away that they definitely didn't see it. Okay. Next up was an Air Force operation called Big Blast. It did take place the night of the 2nd and the morning of the 3rd. However, the majority of the action took place between midnight and 2 a.m., so that would work for the lady being chased and the first time Norman had seen it, but it didn't explain Norman returning with the police officers at 3 a.m. That's true, because the police officers did verify what he he was seeing. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, to a T, Mm -hmm. so. Mm Mm-hmm. The next theory was from Amesbury News. They made a headline claiming the UFO had finally been identified. They said oh. it was an advertising plane from Skylight Aerial Advertising Agency of Boston. However, their plane hadn't left the ground from August 21st to September 10th. Wow. Good job, guys. <laughs> also, what would it be doing at that time? Advertising. At, at 2 a.m.? They do have lights. But they're white lights, not red. But 2 a.m. To a very specific crowd. A very specific crowd. The drunk ones. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone leaving the bars. Okay, okay. Yeah. Usually they're looking at the ground, though, where they're probably going to, you know. Fall. (laughs) Spew. That too, yeah. So this theory is super interesting to me. Did you know Corona isn't just a beer and a sickness? I had no idea. No. Enlighten me. It's also the name for a rare phenomenon from power lines. It is, and I'm quoting this because I could not explain it in an Amy way if I tried. (laughs) Quote, clear weather plasmas which in parentheses, it says luminous clouds of ionized air. Okay. Generated by electrical changes emanating from the high tension power lines. So for this very rare phenomenon to have taken place in multiple locations, Mm -hmm. seems a little far-fetched to me. Mm, Same. Yeah. So 
Now we're getting to the big one. Okay. All of these theories, but nothing that actually makes sense until 45 years after the incident. What? When Sam's favorite, Joe Nickel. (gasps) It's my man's. (laughs) Met with James Magaha. Which is like the coolest name. Yeah. M-C-G-A-H-A. Magaha. (laughs) Magaha. (laughs) James is an astronomer and a former military pilot. Okay. After picking through the witness statements that what stuck out the most to them was the sequencing of the lights. The one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. James, being an ex-pilot for the military, remembered a refueling jet, the KC-97, that had a similar light pattern. Apparently, the KC-97 has a row of five red lights along the fuselage, the body of the plane, that would flash in the same sequence. Norman had made note that the lights seemed to move in a 60-degree angle. When the refueling boom was extended, it would sit at a 64-degree angle from the fuselage, and the lights would reflect on it. Well, I think we have a winner. However, one thing. There's more things. Okay. Well, then I'll ask after if you don't answer. (laughs) While waiting for the aircraft that needed refueling, the KC-97 would make long circuits flying back and forth at the rendezvous site. They would also have these incredibly bright lights coming from the area of the camera, and they would dim them when the plane approached so that they don't blind the pilot. Right. Another interesting thing to note is that the boom has its own set of wings and could look like it's fluttering like a leaf. You answered my question. When in motion. Yep, you answered it. (laughs) The KC-97 would have been used in the big blast training operation taking place at the time of the UFO sightings and would have remained in the area after the training was over to refuel planes to get them back to base. It is pretty amazing how this theory fits. However, I cannot get over the fact that they all said they only saw five lights. And the five lights were on the part that fluttered like a leaf. Right. So if the five lights are actually on the fuselage and only reflecting onto the boom, then they You'd would see, see ten lights. Right. And two, two would lights. yeah, and two would light up at a time, not just one. Right. So also it doesn't it was chasing ex- them. Yeah, it doesn't exactly fit the flight pattern they described, but maybe in the excitement they just didn't describe it accurately. Could have been. So now what do you think? Did your hero change your rating? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, actually. Well. Because I feel like his theory fits, but there are some unexplained things. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I guess it really just stays the same because it was kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> when it was on the, when I had it at a 400 weird shit of meters because then it's, it seems like every other UFO story, you know, kind of. But then, Except with more corroboration. More corroboration, right. But then, you know, if we take it, if we bump it up to where you had it on the weird shit of meter for the reasons that you did, and then Joe Nickel steps in his... <laughs> you know opinion then it would bring it back down to a four for me so i'm just gonna say four four across the board four across the board yeah do you have like any weird questions about it though like obviously the leaf bit is kind of weird i just i still don't understand so what keeps it out of four for me is i don't understand it was chasing them you can't mistake when something is chasing you yeah it kept coming back to them and then you think okay so if it's a it's an airplane right this kc mm-hmm. okay, it's, 97 it's, a, it's an airplane yeah. yeah how is it going back and forth 
Like, yeah. how rapidly and like, are they describing it going back and forth? And that uh, officer, Dave Hunt, he said that it went at a 90 degree angle. Like it turned at a 90 degree angle at one yeah, point. What airplane do you know? Yeah. yeah and the, none. the way that uh, Norman described it was that not that it had like lights lined up at a 60 degree angle he was saying that it only moved at a 60 degree angle so mm-hmm. that that doesn't really seem like a plane Mm-mm. to me no. but also obviously 10 lights if it's reflecting duh yeah, math, that is a Joe big Nickel. one yeah that that is a big one maybe he doesn't do math well i think to his thing is that you know humans are humans and they don't always true but they all said five lights yeah but i think he thinks if you read his stuff he is a skeptic which which is hilarious to me you know as our podcast and what this is the things that we love and we don't try to be like a debunking thing but we do always want to we ask questions we we ask because we don't know how to answer them though well we want (laughs) my thing about it is this isn't a I don't want to be a skeptical podcast like we're skeptical of everything but I want to know if something's real like I want to believe that something's real so Mm -hmm. even though Joe Nickel is a freaking huge skeptic obviously he doesn't believe in any of this but he he brings that is it real part to yeah. me like if joe nickel can't tell me if it's real or not to <laughs> me, then it seems like if joe nickel can't put a logical explanation to something for me then i feel like okay this is real evidence that this happened instead of i'm just believing in some fantasy somebody's <laughs> fucking made up story that they wanted their 15 minutes of fame for you know too bad Joe Nickel wasn't around for the Dear David story. God, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I would lower my rating down to a six because it is a possible answer. Mm-hmm. I just, it just seems weird saying it was a refueling jet, especially since one of those guys, Fowler. Yeah. Fuller was the book writer. Fowler was the <laughs> very investigator. Yeah. Fowler said that uh, Eugene, the officer, had had military experience, especially with a refueling jet. Mm-hmm. Like he specifically said that 45 years before Joe Nickel and Magaha ever came up with this idea. So I'm going to take it down to a six. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I feel like either or is possible. Yeah. I mean, honestly, because you feel like you take in that human aspect of it, that humans can be liars and they sometimes they like to make things up together in groups. You know, the Amityville <laughs> horror yes. stories is a good example of that. So that can happen. But also, if if we take everything that they say, that they've said at face value and everything they say is the same then Joe Nichols, you know, explanation doesn't really line up. So I'm, yeah, I'm 50. It also, it happened so fast. Like he saw it, he went to the police station, they went out and saw it. They came back, they had that Mm -hmm. other call. And then like two hours later, there was someone banging on their door for a report. So it's not like they really had a lot of time to corroborate anything. That is absolutely true. So there is one more thing. Okay. Every year, the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club puts on the Exeter UFO Festival during Labor Day weekend as that a fundraiser. So fun! <laughs> it's a fundraiser for the many charities that they support. Aww. So, if you're in that area, anywhere probably in New England, you could drive there in like an hour. You should go to it next year. This year, <laughs> that'd be really fun. Yeah. So. What do you guys think? Is it a UFO or just some jerk pilot? <laughs> jerk pilot. <laughs> do you know anyone that has flown a KC-97 that would give us some insight? 
Do you have other stories to tell us? I know by now that you've heard the other listener episodes, and we would like to put your stories in our next one. Tell us about the time your mom found two dead children in a playground, and their spirits ended up getting her to start a witch hunt that targeted you and your friends. And just before you and your bestie were burned at the stake, your mentor, 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 not mentor, (laughs) (laughs) reveals the children's spirits to be the demon they really are. And they all snap out of it and save you. Or tell us about the time a vampire queen tried to convert your sister so that your power of three was no more. You can also tell us about the time your cat stood on its back legs. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> you can do that. Um, <laughs> I really like to hear the cat story, by the way. Um, at this is legend pod at gmail.com. That's our email directly. Or you can write it on our submission form on our website at this is and then also while you're at it, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Instagram, we're definitely more active at This Is Legend Pod. So keep it spooky, classy, and sassy. But most of all, keep it legendary. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.